A key aspect of contemporary naturalistic analytic philosophy emphasizes the fact that we cannot go directly to reality. Our grasp of reality is conceptually mediated. We do not have direct access to the thing in itself. Our understanding of reality is of necessity mediated by our conceptual models. Naturalistic philosophers who argue against the myth of the given, the idea that we have unmediated access to sensory data or the physical world, don't all deny that we can refer to objects that exist outside of our conceptual scheme. Quine, for example, made heavyweight of observation sentences, sentences which hook on aspects of the mind-independent world. Even Quine's biggest fans would acknowledge that he never managed to fully make clear the notion of an observation sentence and its relation to other sentences in our conceptual scheme. Philosophers of a more cognitive bent have tried to fix reference via internal cognitive structures with the role of conceptualization plays in fixing references still debated, see Fodor and Pilishin's 2014 criticism of Tyler Burge. Despite some impressive evidence from neuroscience, our best scientific theories still support the notion that our purchase on the world is gained in a theory-laden way and we have no reasonable way of ripping our minds off and seeing the world as it is. Given this fact, I think it is worth reflecting on how the notion of observation is used in other schools of thought. In popular lower phenomenology studies reality as it reveals itself to us in experience. On this caricatured view of phenomenology, we have experiences which are unmediated by conceptual schemes, and it is the job of the philosopher to study these experiences prior to conceptualizing them. At the other end of the spectrum we are told observation plays a key role in behavioral science. Common lore has it that behavioral scientists refuse to acknowledge intermediate cognitive structures because they cannot be directly observed. Direct observation is the paradigm for the behavioral scientist, or so popular science tells us. Based on these two popular stories one could conclude that both behavioral science and phenomenology while approaching reality from different perspectives still agree on the same misguided premise, that we can directly observe reality. A critic who accepted the above caricatures could argue that both traditions haven't kept up with developments in neuroscience, cognitive science and analytic philosophy. In this blog post I will argue that the concept of observation used by both behavioral scientists and phenomenologists is much more sophisticated than the usual caricatures spouted by their critics. After explaining how both disciplines use the concept of observation I will then contrast them arguing that the behavioral notion of observation and measurement is incomplete and can be improved on by using insights from phenomenology. In tackling this project there is a danger that I will be applying labels in too broad a brush stroke. Phenomenologists from Husserl, Heidegger, Ponty and Derrida all start with radically different presuppositions. Likewise, in the field of behavioral science people like Watson, Skinner, Tolman, and Hayes all held widely divergent philosophical assumptions about the nature of the field. To avoid painting in too broad a brushstroke I will limit my approach to phenomenology as it is represented by Merleau-Ponty and behavioral science as it is practiced by contemporary applied behavioral analysis. By focusing on these different techniques and how they are used in the field I hope to be able to give a more grounded conception of how they use the notion of observation. In the final section I will draw some connections between behavioral science, phenomenology and their different ways of dealing with observation. Behavioral science and the concept of observation. Not to define precisely and to measure these behavioral excesses and deficiencies, then, is a fundamental error. It is akin to the malpractice of a nurse who decides not to measure vital signs, heart rate, respiration rate, temperature, and blood pressure, perhaps arguing that she is too busy, that subjective estimates of vital signs are quite adequate, the vital signs are only superficial estimates of the patient's health, 
or that vital signs do not signify the nature of the underlying pathology. ABAP. 95. While in the scientific community behavioral science is considered an outdated position, which was refuted by Chomsky half a century ago. In the applied sciences it is flourishing as a field. Applied behavioral analysis 1, focuses on behavior modification and their chief clientele is people with autism and people with intellectual disabilities. They sell themselves as the only form of therapy that achieves predictable results which can be measured scientifically. Hence, they focus heavily on the notion of observation which they argue is the only way to guarantee that you can measure behavioral change. In ABA the emphasis isn't so much on observation as on measurement of what is observed. And measurement is important for the ABA practitioner not because they want to sketch an epistemological theory of how we know what we know. Rather they argue that it is only through measurement we gain accurate descriptions and prediction and control of our subject matter. Without measurement our theories will be nothing more than subjective hunches. The key for the ABA practitioner is to gain predictive control over the subject matter they are studying. So rather than just relying on passive observation one is led down the route of using careful measurements of behaviors, so any behavior change that occurs because of treatment can be precisely quantified. A behavior is not just measured in isolation. So, for example, consider a form of self-injurious behavior where a person is hitting themselves on the jaw. The aim of measuring this behavior is to get answers about whether there are functional relations between the behavior and environmental contingencies, ABAP. 94. To do this you need to ascertain when the behavior began, what the antecedent events were that preceded the behavior, the duration of the behavior, the intensity of the behavior, whether the behaviors varied or changed as a result of treatment. Furthermore, if you keep a detailed measure of any time a particular behavior occurs, you will be able to establish the possible effects of different environments on the intensity, duration and likelihood of the said behavior occurring. ABA practitioners note that because behavior occurs over time it has three primary qualities. 1. Countability. Instances of a response class can occur repeatedly through time. Hence, they can be counted. 2. Temporal extent. Every behavior occurs during some amount of time, which can be measured. 3. Temporal locus. Every behavior occurs at a certain point of time with respect to other events, IBID P. 95. As a form of therapy ABA emphasizes measurement because it is the only way to guarantee the efficaciousness of the treatment. As you cannot argue that a treatment led to certain problematic behaviors decreasing, unless you are able to quantify the how often the behavior occurred prior to the treatment, and how often it occurred post-treatment. While ABA's emphasis on measurement is laudable and is a way of keeping honest about what you are achieving, there is a sense in which it gives an air of objectivity to your treatments that is not fully warranted. Phenomenology and Intellectual Disability We must return to the social world with which we are in contact through the simple fact of our existence, and that we inseparably bear along with us prior to every objectification. The social world is already there when we come to know it or when we judge it. An individualistic or sociological philosophy is a certain perception of coexistence systematized and made explicit. Prior to this coming to awareness, the social exists silently and as a solicitation. Phenomenology of Perception p. 379. In our above discussion of behavioral science we discussed a person hitting themselves on the jaw repeatedly, the ABA beginning point was to count the amount of times the behavior occurred, this approach in effect treats the person as an object in the world like any other object. The aim was to measure the intensity, duration, and temporal locus of an event because this type of accurate measurement made prediction and control of the subject more likely. 
This evidence-based approach is a useful tool which is favored by many services because it is easier to justify spending on a form of therapy if one can objectively characterize its utility. However, from a phenomenological perspective this behavioral approach is open to criticism for ignoring a key form of evidence. The phenomenological approach asks us to key in on our lived experience of the world and this lived experience is sometimes ignored by behavioral methodology. From a behavioral perspective if an instance of challenging behavior occurs the emphasis is on finding antecedents, measuring the behaviors that occurred during the incident, and measuring the consequences of the incident. Over time, as we classify behavioral patterns into groups and measure how these patterns change based on treatment, we can map all this data statistically to demonstrate the rate of behavior change. However, in all this measuring and classifying the lived world of experience is pushed out of our description of events. In his Phenomenology of Perception Merleau-Ponty emphasized the lived world of experience which is at odds with the ABA conception of humans as just objects amongst objects waiting to be measured. The whole escapes the well-known instruments of physical mathematical analysis to open onto another type of intelligibility. Ibid p. 11. When Ponty is criticizing the idea of studying humans using the tools of physical mathematical analysis, he is attacking both empiricists such as Hume and the logical positivists. On Ponty's view empiricists are guilty of ignoring the background conditions which give our observations sense. However, while his criticisms were directed to logical positivists and empiricists, they have clear relevance to the practice of ABA. Below Ponty describes what it is that he thinks the likes of ABA practitioners are missing. We find, as a fundamental layer, a hole already pregnant with sense. This is not a series of incomplete sensations between which memories would have to be embedded, but rather the physiognomy the structure of the landscape or of the world spontaneously in accordance with our present intentions, and with our previous experiences. Here the true problem of memory's role in perception appears, and it is tied to the general problem of perceptual consciousness. It is a question of understanding how consciousness by its own energy and without bringing along any additional materials and a mythical unconsciousness can, with time, alter the structure of landscapes, how at each instant, its previous experience is present to it in the form of an horizon that it can reopen, if it takes the horizon as a theme for knowledge in an act of remembering, but can also leave on the margins, and that thus immediately provides the perceived with a present atmosphere and signification. A field always available to consciousness that, for this very reason, surrounds and envelops all of its perceptions, it is an atmosphere, an horizon, or even the settings that assign consciousness a temporal situation such as the present of the past that makes distinct acts of perception and remembering possible. To perceive is not to experience a multitude of impressions that bring along with them some memories capable of completing them, it is to see an imminent sense bursting forth, from a constellation of givens without which no call to memory is possible. To remember is not to bring back before the gaze of consciousness a self-subsistent picture of the past, it is to plunge into the horizon of the past and gradually to unfold tightly packed perspectives until the experiences that it summarizes are as if lived anew in their own temporal place. To perceive is not to remember. Ibid p. 23. In the above lengthy quote Ponty is describing our perceptions and their relations to memory in a vastly different manner to the way in which ABA practitioners do. Consider our above example of a service user engaging in self-injurious behavior. We have seen above how an ABA practitioner would address the situation in terms of quantification of the class of behavior, the number of times the behavior occurred, and antecedents and consequences of the behavior. But Ponty's emphasis would be on different factors. 
When you see another human engage in self-injurious behavior you do not just see the behavior from the outside as a passive observer. Rather you are caught up in the events occurring. While you can try to count the behaviors occurring, and afterwards analyze what has happened, at the moment the behavior is occurring, you are a participant in an event and not an observer of an event. You see a person in distress who is hurting himself, this behavior impacts on you emotionally. Furthermore, when this distress occurs memories at the horizons of your consciousness will become more prominent, your memories of previous experiences similar to this one will flood forward, these memories will color how you experience the current event. As well your memories coloring how you deal with the self-injurious behavior, your mind will also be directed towards the future. Based on your past experiences you will anticipate how long this behavior may go on for and this will color how you feel about this behavior. All of this happens in the moment. But each moment floods into the next one and your engagement with the service user as you try to calm them down will ensue a flow of events that is unpredictable. Any behavior you engage in to minimize the self-injurious behavior will impact the consciousness of the service user you are working with. The service user may recall instances in the past where staff try to intervene when they engage in self-injurious behavior and this recollection will color how they experience the intervention. Their past experiences of interventions may color how they view this current interaction. Furthermore, they may have an idea of how much frustrations the interventions typically bring them, this may cause them to anticipate an extended period of frustration too. In this interaction you have two people engaging in a struggle, who interact and react to each other in a dynamic process that is not subject to prediction and control. For any idea of measuring the behavior of the service user to make sense, one would need to also put in place measurement system for the staff, which detail their history of interactions with the service user and a system to analyze the culture of interaction in relation to group dynamics. Furthermore, an analysis of the dynamics that shape this group would be necessary. When trying to quantify a service user's behavior ABA style a more contextual approach is needed. No behavior occurs in isolation. An approach to a person that engages in self-injurious behavior that treats the behavior as an independent event to be measured, will ignore the fact that the person doing the measuring is not an objective scientific instrument like a thermostat or a camera but is rather a subject engaged in the drama unfolding in the moment. Whether the person is aware of their own behavior, feelings and how they are affecting the way the event unfolds or not they will still be a part of the event. And being aware of themselves and lived experience in the moment can help them modify their role in the event that is unfolding and this may offer an insight that is more useful than simply passively measuring the challenging behavior. So, for example, a healthcare worker experiencing a service user engaging in a bout of challenging behavior such as self-injurious behavior and loud screaming may recall that in the past this behavior lasted for hours. This recollection may make the worker experience frustration, which will make them tense and hence less effective in implementing calming procedures and could result in the behavior getting worse. No amount of observing the behavior of the service user will tell you why they their behavior got worse unless you factor in your own feelings and behavior that played a key causal role in the unfolding trauma. One difficulty in understanding in these situations is that we are not always good at that type of self-reflection. In general, a manner of thinking that is unaware of itself and that is at home in the things cannot be refuted by describing phenomena. The physicist's atoms will always seem more real than the historical and qualitative picture of this world, the physico-chemical processes more real than organic forms, empiricism psychic atoms more real than perceived phenomena, and intellectual atoms, namely, the Vienna Circle's significations, more than real consciousness, so long as one seeks to construct the picture of this world, life perception, or mind, 
rather than recognizing the experience we have of them as the immediate source and as the final authority of our knowledge. Ibid p. 24. Here Ponti is noting that to a person so committed a scientific philosophy the world as we experience it will always recede to a background and appear unreal. Such unreflective people will either dismiss the lived world of both them and the service user they are working with. However, despite this dismissive attitude, whether they like it or not they are immersed in this world and their engagement in this world will have influences on them that cannot be measured from the point of view of an objective spectator. Dash. 1. Henceforth applied behavioral analysis will be referred to as ABA. 2. The service user may have difficulties in projecting into the future or in remembering the past and this will impact on how they experience the interaction.